Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sarah Rich, author, artist, maritime archaeologist, and assistant professor at the HTC Honors College at Coastal Carolina University in Conway, South Carolina, to talk about her new book, Shipwreck Hauntography, Underwater Ruins in the Uncanny, out 2021 with Amsterdam University Press. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the program. Hi, Yana. Thank you so much for having me. I am so pleased to talk to you. So how are you today? How's, uh, how's uh, South Carolina? Um, it's it's actually a beautiful day here um, on the coast of South Carolina. We've we've had our hurricane, and so now the temperature has dropped about twenty degrees, and the humidity about forty percent. So it's um, it's pretty great. Yeah, I, it's, I'm sorry you had to like the cost of that is a hurricane, but <laughs> I mean, okay. Um, Sarah, okay, so normally a bio provides information and yours gave me more questions than answers. Um, it's like, I, if I were to paraphrase, I'd be like, hi, I'm Sarah, I do the cool things. So uh, can you just tell me what what's what do you do? What's your thing? And, and how did that get you to South Carolina? This is a very um, totally valid question. Um, I've, I've had a definitely an unusual path. Um, and so yeah, all of my degrees are in completely different things. So my first uh, degree, my bachelor's degree is in uh, fine arts. Um, so like studio art, basically painting and sculpture uh, from the University of Kansas, which is where I grew up and where all my family is. And then um, I went to, I got my master's from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee um, in art history with an emphasis in ancient art and archaeology. So I was sort of trying to like shift from just making art and, and thinking about ancient art to actually like uh, to studying it. And then um, some, somewhere in between there, in between my bachelor's and master's, I started uh, I started diving because I was working at a publishing, um, a printing and publishing company in Kansas. And I was like, I cannot do this for the rest of my life. I cannot work in an office for the rest of my life. And on my way to the office from my house, I passed a dive shop, believe it or not. It was a dive shop and also a Volkswagen repair shop so <laughs> combined in one. This is very Kansas, right? Yeah. That, so, um, so I started taking uh, diving lessons and I just took, took to it immediately and, um, you know, kind of, you know, realized that this is, this is the direction that I needed to be heading. And so started developing a kind of strategy to get there. And then, um, so yeah, after my master's, I went straight into my PhD um, at the University of Leuven in Belgium. And then uh, postdoc in, uh, so my, my doctorate is in ancient Near Eastern studies, which is extremely interdisciplinary. Um, so I was able to do a lot with um, ancient languages, um, you know, religions, all of the, the ancient Middle East, um, obviously also art history and archaeology. And so my research was really focused on the relationship between forests and shipbuilding um, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And so then I took that experience into my postdoc uh, with a big European research project called Foresea Discovery, uh, which was an amazing experience. So I was there for two years um, at Maritime Archaeology Trust, um, was where I was stationed in Southampton on the south coast of England. And um, so, yeah, I just took that that kind of experience of, of studying the relationship between forestry and, and shipbuilding um, from the, an ancient East Mediterranean context and kind of shifted it over to an early modern context. And this is really where shipwreck hontography was born, uh, was from that postdoctoral fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it was a, it was a you know, two year um, program. 
So then I moved back to the States to Appalachian State University, where I taught in the art department um, for two years before getting my current position at Coastal Carolina University. So, and I'm in the, the Honors College and formerly, formerly the Honors College and Center for Interdisciplinary Studies. However, Interdisciplinary Studies has since shifted over to the, the College of Humanities and Fine Arts. And so we are now just the Honors College. So, all right. Yeah, that sounds like a thing a dean would do. <laughs> that makes great sense in dean brain. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, this this actually makes perfect sense. And so you create art and I, that's, it makes sense. Um, I, you know, can you, can I like have my students call you and they tell me they just don't know what to do. They've got to get the perfect major. Yes, definitely. Yes. I, I, you know, I tell my students too all the time, like you don't have to, like whatever you decide right now is not going to define the rest of your life. You know, you can, you can declare a major as a freshman and change it 15 times by the time you graduate. It might prolong, you know, your, your experience at the university by like a semester or two, but it's not going to be, yeah, it's not going to be the end of the world. And, you know, just because you graduate with a degree in marine science doesn't mean that you can't go on to do other things that may, may be apparently unrelated, even though like in your mind, they may be very much related. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Also, d- but don't tell them that no one cares about their GPA because. Oh, right. Oh, I know. That, <laughs> that we can't have. Oh, my <laughs> honor students would have a, they would just would have a flip out. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> they can't, they can't know that. All right. Um, <clears throat> so I actually, before we talk about the the book, this is just a personally, like, I want to know, talk to me about your art. Are you st- still creating art? Yeah, I do. I've had to scale back quite a bit, um, you know, just because of other commitments. Um, But I'm so fortunate to be in such an interdisciplinary program that basically my academic work, my fiction writing, my artwork, it all goes into my tenure portfolio. Um, And I'm going up for tenure next year. um, So the the portfolio is getting quite thick. Um, uh, But yeah, I have a couple of new projects since Shipwreck Contography, and um, they are in my house. Um, they haven't actually gone into an exhibition. I was going to submit them for an exhibition, but it was just like, it was too much, um, at this point in the semester to try to manage it all. Um, so next year, uh, we have a a local, what is it called? The Wakama Arts and Crafts Guild, uh, which is situated in Myrtle beach, South Carolina. And, um, so they're trying to doing the, the, the good work of, um, you know, making this, this area of the low country a little bit more, a little bit more artsy and um, we, we could use that. We could use a bit of culture in this part of the country. Um, so I definitely want to be a part of that. Um, I just have to kind of shift things around a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, I'm working on a, a project right now that's on. So the, those two projects that I mentioned before, um, they, I found a, a canoe in the middle of the woods um, that was decayed. And so I took parts of the canoe and then made them into other things. Um, one of which is, uh, one I, I call the anti-arc. And so it's like, a, it's basically like a, a ship, but with each of the decks separated by, um, by kind of fishing line. And all of the, there are all these little creatures and objects on each of the decks, and they're all sort of mingling together. Um, and they're all, you know, allegedly inanimate or formerly living or, um, you know, have always been inanimate. So, um, so I, I really like how that project turned out. Um, but it has yet to face the public. So we'll see how, how that holds up. Uh, and then yeah. a new one that I've just started is, um, is, a, is a, a, do you know what octopus trees are? Is this something no. that, that people know about? Okay, no, so, so. 
<laughs> we you know how like in, in South Carolina and in, in North Carolina and really like throughout um, throughout the Southeast, especially along the coast, we have these massive live oak trees that are just like, and the Spanish moss just dangles from the limbs and they're so magnificent and haunting and romantic. And um, the ones that live in the maritime forests, so the ones that are closest to the coast, um, occasionally get blown over by big storms like hurricanes, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they they blow over, um, they get oftentimes covered with sand. So the trunk is covered by sand, and then the branches actually grow up, sort of in the shape of a tree. But they have like the, the branches are sort of like tentacular in a way. Oh, so like wow. they, right. they stretch out like tentacles. Hence octopus tree. Mm -hmm. So we have a few of these in this area called Huntington Beach State Park. And um, it's, it's close by here. It's one of my favorite places probably in the world. And so I'm, I'm doing drawings of these trees with the, uh, the Atlantic in the background and then the substrate. So one of my other great loves is mushrooms. And I have a book coming out on, on mushrooms in, uh, in January. So it sort of like combines all of, my, all of my great loves, which is like cephalopods, the ocean, <laughs> trees, and mushrooms. So... Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm <laughs> uh, very interested. I would love to see this. And you know, um, listeners, this may sound bizarre to you, but that is actually the perfect segue into this book, right? Actually, because this book is not, um, is really hard to uh, pigeonhole for sure. Um, and and uh, hearing you talk about the anti arc is something that really is going to resonate well. This makes sense after reading this book. Um, so let's let's get into the book. Um, how did you come to like? How did this happen? This per, you said it was born in your postdoc work, but there's so much here that you bring in this idea of you know really the ideas of the Enlightenment and how they've tracked on to maritime archaeology, um, but you have poetry throughout as well, right? And this is a very theoretically sophisticated work. So tell me how all of this comes together for you. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure even where to start with that yeah. because it, it is such a like I, 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 I the word that comes to mind is like a mosaic, but I think that it's not so much separated um, like the way that we think of, of you know the tesserae, you know the individual pieces of, of glass and stone that compose a mosaic. It's I think it's it's you know the, the all of this kind of weird stuff of you know, of, of shipwrecks and critical theory and, um, and poetry and art that it it's, I hope anyway, like I, my intention anyway, was to sort of seamlessly integrate these things and, um, you know, to demonstrate that while we think in this really dichotomous way, I think particularly as, as Westerners, maybe, maybe as, as, uh, you know, as modern, uh, you know, modern Westerners in particular, we tend to try to separate things out and, and categorize and classify things like this is poetry, this is art, this is science. And, you know, so one of the, the things that I'm trying to accomplish with this book is to is to really, you know, again, try to integrate in, uh, those things and, and make the point that we don't have to do it, do it this way. We don't have to think in terms of these strict categories, um, particularly in, in relation to science and art. Um, but but of course, a lot of the book is is dedicated to you know dismantling the um, the nature culture binary too, and maybe even the binary opposition between living and dead. Yeah, and that comes through very quick, very clearly. Um, so actually, maybe the next best question is, what is a hauntography? Hmm. Okay, so this is. Um, 
Oh boy. Um, I had, I found this, can I just read this yes. little tiny bit from the abstract? Because I think this is, this is the, um, from the abstract of chapter, um, of, of the preface, I'm sorry. And this I think is probably the simplest and most direct way to think about what hauntography is. So, um, it says that the term hauntography is defined as a creative process that combines the methods of Ian Bogos alien phenomenology, that is ontography, metaphorism, and carpentry to attempt comprehension and communication of an object that is absent and present, bygone and enduring. So um, I have set out, okay, so I am actually working on a paper right now that um, calls into question whether or not Damien Hirst's um, project, uh, what is it? The shipwreck treasures from the wreck of the unbelievable. All right. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, I'm sure a couple of, of your listeners are, but it's this big hoax documentary, right. Um, about the discovery of this wreck and, and all of that. So I have, this came up actually in a class that I was teaching last spring semester, um, called shipwrecks in the Anthropocene. And we watched this documentary and, you know, the question was raised is whether or not that documentary or like mock docu mockumentary or whatever would count as a hauntograph. And I was like, I don't know. I really don't know. And so I was like, okay, I need to do the work of philosophy and set out some uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for what constitutes a hauntograph. And so um, I have a, a paper that I'm working on that I plan to submit, um, you know, for to uh, the Journal of Aesthetic Edu Aesthetics and Education, I think is the name of the journal, um, by the end of the year, that kind of makes it explicit what exactly a hauntograph is. And um, in, in the end, I'll, spoiler alert here, I decide that that uh, Damien Hirst project is not a hauntograph, um, mainly because a hauntograph is, is it very much a, a sort of a realist. It's, it's, there is speculation, of course, because we can't ever fully understand what is what it is to you know, exist in another object's skin and, that, and you know, to be another object. So the speculation is, is fundamentally necessary. But when it, when it shifts into this sort of like embracing um, you know, post-truth and alternative facts and, and deception and things like that, that sort of runs contrary to the, to the realist intentions of, um, of hauntography. Okay. So, I don't know if that helps at all. Feel free to ask follow-up questions. Before. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. I actually would like to read a couple sentences from the introduction as well. Um, in parks, I think they, they set up where I want to go next with this and like the idea of kind of the, the, the places of intersection, like these kind of binaries you explode that we want to discuss. Um, but also, I just want our listeners to grasp the real beauty of your prose. Right? It's a really nice, you, you're a beautiful writer. <clears throat> okay, so here we go from the preface. <clears throat> Introduction, not sure. Anyway, these quiet, broken, these, these quiet, broken vessels that exist both beyond and despite our access are presented as liminal objects that generate a sense, a tingling one at that, of some especially elusive elements of reality that don't seem real but are indeed. A close encounter with a shipwreck in its underwater realm is a brush with the eerie, horrific, and uncanny, but also the wondrous, ecstatic, and sublime. Not surprisingly, then, we humans remain simultaneously drawn to and disgusted by shipwrecks, just as we feel so ambivalently about the mysterious oceanic realm in which millions of them reside, with more added to their numbers all the time. And it's just beautiful, right? That's beautiful prose. 
Um, and I read this and I really get this idea, you know, it makes me, it recalls like some monster theory. And then I'm, I'm thinking of, um, Oh, you know, these, these things that are in between spaces, very liminal, but like that, that represent more than one thing at once, like a monster, you know, that that is both enticing and dangerous. This thing we want. Is that a fair reading of a shipwreck is like this monstrous place? Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I hadn't really thought of it in, in, in exactly those terms, but, but absolutely. Like when you were, when you were, you know, talking about monstrosity, I'm thinking about werewolves and of course, you know, Halloween is coming up and it is my absolute favorite holiday. Um, But yeah, these, these things that are two different things combined to create something completely different, right. That, um, that, that defies, you know, these, you know, quick and easy categorization um, methods that we've, that we're so accustomed to. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's um, really kind of fleshed out in the fourth chapter, especially on uh, vibrant corpses, I think is the name of that chapter where, um, you know, we have, you know, you've got like, because a lot of the book is really exploring the relationship between the ship and the, and the shipwreck, or in other Mm -hmm. words, the ship as this sort of living body and the wreck as this, as this dead body that we have come to understand it. And so when, um, you know, scientists such as, such as myself, maritime nautical archaeologists, you know, dive down to these wrecks and, and especially the ones that are sort of lifted timber by timber from the bottom of the sea, what we're really doing is, is a kind of act of quasi-resurrection, mm-hmm. um, this sort of, you know, trying to re- reinvigorate or reanimate, you know, this thing that we construe as, as dead um, and passive and inert, um, decaying and so forth. But in reality, you know, wrecks are, are much more than that, or I argue anyway, and especially in, in the fourth chapter where, you know, you have this sort of like conglomeration that is happening underwater. Like there is disintegration happening in, in almost all cases for sure. But there is also an accretion that's happening too with, um, you know, with biofilms that then invite, you know, bigger uh, marine life and, you know, the colonization of, of plants and, and animals um, on these uh, on these wrecks, you know, eventually forming something like an artificial reef, and in that sense, I, I really do think that that you're onto something as far as like the monstrosity is concerned, because it, it really becomes it sort of transcends either of these things, just like the werewolf does. Like it's part human, it's part wolf, so it's neither but both, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in in that sense, you know, like the the ship, you know, the shipwreck is neither ship nor just a just a broken ship it's becoming something else it's becoming right. something more than that yeah this um i was thinking too about the layers of time it exists like the the like the, there was a ship that went out to do a thing probably a bad thing um maybe maybe just maybe not but odds are off to do some piece of something maybe not that wouldn't have been good for the people it met but you know and so it had this purpose and then 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 it, it it's if there's a failure right like and i just taught the queer art of failure again so i was thinking about this about how like the ship fails but then it becomes this other thing and then you have the moment when it breaks and it feels like a lot of if i'm if i understand what a lot of what you do as maritime archaeologists is try to get at what that artifact was then right mm-hmm. when it first failed but then it's it, it also exists, you can see all of the time since, in some cases, hundreds of years, thousands of years, I suppose. I don't know if anything lives from that long, but yeah, sure. You know, and I, I think it's funny that I just said lives, but <laughs> for <laughs> something that's underwater, but yeah. And so you've got all these different timelines. And so it exists in this, like the hope of what it was intended to do all the way to this new ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems like a lot to try to catalog. 
Yeah, for sure. And it's it's so it, it's also it opens up this other kind of ethical set of questions or set of ethical questions, I guess, about um, whether or not we even have like at, at what point does does a does wreckage stop belonging to the humans who created the, the ship, right? And so, you know, like most, um, you know, most ships are, you know, like they're sailed for, I mean, certainly no more than like a hundred years at the most. And like when we're talking about wooden ships, it's even way less than that, you know. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, it's only a couple of decades, like some of our most famous ones, like the Mary Rose, for instance, you know. It's, and then they spend, like you said, hundreds or sometimes thousands of years underwater. So who do they really belong to? I mean, do they belong to the creators? The, you know, because the, obviously they were, um, you know, made by humans, you know, so they are anthropogenic or do they belong to the, to the users, the, the, you know, the, the communities that have been using them for, you know, again, decades, centuries, millennia. And I would, I would argue that that question needs to be taken a little bit more seriously than what it is instead of automatically assuming that, uh, that we, um, as the as the creators, that our species is sort of you know um, you know fundamentally uh, you know has has you know this sort of fundamental ownership over these objects. And it, what's re- especially interesting to me is that we don't seem to make that claim when the shipwrecks are dirty, when they are polluting, when they are um, you know like destroying ecosystems. You know, then it's just this sort of like archaeologists are sort of like hands off somebody else's problem, right? <laughs> Um, and that I, 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 this concerns me, um, a lot. And again, this is something that I talk about a little bit in chapter four and also in, um, a new edited volume, um, that I, uh, co-edited with a, a colleague and friend of mine, Peter Campbell, who was also a nautical archeologist. He's at Cranfield university. And, um, we, uh, gathered together a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people, marine scientists, um, media theorists, um, philosophers, archeologists, both maritime and terrestrial, um, gathered together a bunch of these thinkers, um, in this new edited volume that's going to be published, uh, through Sidestone Press in, in, uh, nearby Leiden, where you are. And, um, uh, so that will be coming out also in January. Um, and it's open access for those who are interested. It's called Contemporary Philosophy for Maritime Archaeology. Um, so uh, one of the papers in there is one that I co-wrote with a couple of, of marine biologists that, it's, that we sort of suss out this problem of, um, of you know, shipwrecks in, in the Anthropocene and, um, you know, the kind of the sense of responsibility that, that archaeologists have versus marine biologists and what we ought to do with, uh, with these wrecks. I mean, and what what ought you do? I mean, there's the, this is a question about heritage, patrimony, artifact, like call it what you will, as well. Like, do, should something stay underground? Um, who owns it if we bring it up? What and what is this act like? Then there's adding yet more to the story of this item, right? When you pull it out of the sea, beam by beam, and reconstruct it somewhere. I'm thinking about you know the I went to the Vasa Museum in Stockholm last year. There's this there is a ship and but it's not in the water and that's weird and uh, and cool incredibly cool i was like jaw hanging open 8 year old excited in this place but you know then i'm thinking about like what does that mean and there were bodies in there as well right yeah. this yeah. feels like more of a thing we should think about than i think we do i don't know yeah 
And for, you know, to be clear, like the, the UNESCO guidelines for underwater cultural heritage, um, you know, say that that in situ preservation, so preservation where the wreck happened underwater or or on land in some cases too, like in intertidal zones or in rivers, uh, riverbeds or wherever, that in situ preservation should be the first recourse for the management of underwater cultural heritage. But the reasoning for that, as far as I understand, is simply to kind of prolong the inevitable with the idea that cases like the Vasa and, and the Mary Rose, that these are, and, and uh, uh, LaBelle as well, and all these other examples, that these are sort of the ideal. But we have these limitations of resources and museum space and, uh, you know, really like these kind of ultimately financial resources um, and, and limitations to those that should keep us um, to sort of preserving these things in situ for future generations where, you know, uh, presumably the, um, the the love of underwater cultural heritage will be greater and the resources will be greater because capitalism is built on ever more expansion and growth. And, um, you know, so, so while I agree with the UNESCO protocols, you know, like in, in theory, sort of like, you know, like the, the practical, their practical reason for having this, uh, for having made this, uh, this set of protocols is, um, yeah, it is different. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, then there's the, um, so I want to talk about this idea of like the ethics, the early modern theological ideas and ethics mm. and how much that impacts the decision like of thinking about what to do with a shipwreck, right? So you you talk about the resurrection of like pulling these things out. Would you like to comment a little bit more here? Yeah, so um, there, uh, yeah, a lot of the book is is really, um, in some respects, it's kind of a, I, I'm afraid that it sort of comes off as a sort of critique of the influence of Christianity on contemporary scientific practice. And in some sense, that that is part of it. But I have to say that while doing the research for this book, and I and I will admit that from the outset, I did not intend um, for there to be so much theological discourse in in the book. But that is the direction that it that it went um, when I really started getting into this. And part of that is because I found myself questioning, you know, these these sort of things in my in my own in my personal life. Um, I hope this isn't too much information, but I, I became romantically involved with uh, with with a Christian, and I am not. And um, this person is now my husband, and we are very happy. Um, but you know, in, in having these sort of like you know like this sort of like strike slip fault as far as our spirituality is concerned, it really got me thinking about um, yeah, just about the influence of Christianity in in in, in science. And um, so when I started digging into it. I was, you know, trying to understand, of course, I think subconsciously why he thinks, why he believes the way that he does, but sort of channeling that through the book, right? And and into this, this bigger, you know, scientific project. And I have to say that over the course of this research, I have developed so much of a, just a, an immensely greater appreciation for uh, for Christian theology and just the amount of thought and um, argumentation that has been put into um, this uh, this sort of like set of beliefs, you know, over the course of, of centuries and, and you know, ultimately, um, you know, millennia. 
So, um, you know, kind of getting into like this nitty gritty stuff with St. Saint, Saint Augustine and, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas and, you know, all of these, these um, really profound Christian thinkers, you know, was, uh, was really fascinating and, and, and immensely rewarding. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the book is arguing that the, uh, that the effects, um, unintended, of course, but the, the effects of this sort of um, theological... Um, emphasis on on immortality and individual uh, individual immortality, uh, eternity, utopia, like the, the the return to a utopia. That these things have all sort of probably again subconsciously um, influenced the way that archaeologists approach approach dead ships, uh, or approach you know what what we believe, what we often construe as dead ships. And um, so there is this kind of impulse, this sort of like deontological impulse to uh, to resurrect. And so when we see these things underwater, which already the underwater realm has all of these associations with death and, and ultimately with the feminine. So there is a lot of gender stuff that goes into this too, um, that there is this sort of like uh, this impulse to, um, you know, to bring these things out of the water. And I think that, um, you know, a, a, like I said before, that the the fact of science in, in the West, like that modern Western science began as a theological project, right? Like we started, um, you know, sort of embracing science as a way to embrace God. In other words, know the creation, study the creation, get closer to the creation, and you get closer to the creator, so it was a sort of method for, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for getting closer to God. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, over the centuries, these, you know, these interests have have diverged considerably. And, you know, we've, we've, um, you know, become, you know, a more secular society or set of societies in the West. Um, but that that origin story, I think, is very important for how we uh, for how we understand and how we practice science, really, and, and not just archaeology, but other sciences as well. You know, I mean, there's this idea that we've separated uh, religious and sci- religion and science so much, but I, I'm just not buying it, really. I mean, there's still so much about uh, that we take for granted, you know, our ability to know everything, humans' dominance over the earth, like our, that we have some right to understand every other creature at, to its cellular level. I mean, these things are, are part and parcel of that enlightenment project that was never, ever not religious. Yeah. Um, I say with complete confidence as an early modern scholar, right? Um, but I'm, I mean, there is also this idea, you know, you talk about, we talk about resurrection of the ship, but also there's a progress narrative there. Mm-hmm. It started, it failed, we'll pull it back up, we'll bring it where it's supposed to be, um, bringing it back to its perfection. And, the, and just simply knowing what's down there, being able to catalog it, like this is, we know this thing now. I mean, that's the enlightenment in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. It, um, I, I don't know that I was ready for it when I was reading it. I was, I went a little skeptical, but I was really convinced by this. I was really, I was really convinced by your argument, and it, it, I thought it was an interesting and new way for me to think about a lot of, you know, my work as an historian. What we do, what what our museums do, what is it we're doing with our cultural par- like our ca- cultural patrimony, whatever construed writ large, right? Well, not very fascinating. Um, well, thank you. That's actually really heartwarming to know that, that as an early modernist, because as I said, like not my, you know, my background is not really in like um, 
early modern history. And so there's been like a, a steep learning curve over the past few, you know, several years, really. Um, but that's, that is uh, very encouraging that, uh, that you found the argument convincing, given your area of expertise. Yeah, and a very, it was it, it really, it, it felt, it, it worked, and it, it felt like this very natural thing. It was a very nice and clear place for me to think about it. Um, so we're, we're closing in on like how much longer we want to talk about this, but I've got a couple things and I thought maybe what might be best for our, re- for our listeners and for you is if we could talk about, um, there are a couple shipwrecks that you really use as like, you, you go into and talk about and they become like these pedagogical tools and for you and they, they bear a lot of your argument. So if we, we could just talk about a couple of those, I would love to start with the Nisha shipwreck. Am I saying that properly, Nisia? Nicia, yeah, yeah, the Nicia shipwreck. So I think, well, my first question is like, you know, what, where is it? But that, that really is the key, right? So that's one of those questions, kind of like, is Alsace in France? Oh, um, <laughs> but so you know, talk to me about the Nicia shipwreck. What is it? Where is it? What do you, what does it do for you with this book? All right, so the Nicia shipwreck is. Uh, uh, located um, off the east coast of Cyprus. Um, it is, well, we're sort of un- uncertain exactly about the date of its sinking or, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of its own origin story is a little bit uncertain at the moment. But um, the current hypothesis is that it was a late Ottoman wreck. Um, and th- that is significant because it's sort of always sort of been understood as a, as a late Ottoman wreck. Um, it has been... Um, pillaged, um, looted uh, considerably by uh, by recreational divers um, in Cyprus. And um, I was part of the, uh, the, the team, the, un- the University of Cyprus team who um, did uh, ex- who did excavate and uh, you know raise one of the, the cannons that was at risk of looting as well. Um, and uh, you know we excavated trying to you know again find out, who built this ship, where it was built, how it sank, you know, kind of get to some of those big archaeological questions. Um, but what's interesting to me about, about the Nicia is sort of it's, is, is how it kind of um, represents these, these sort of political issues when it comes to um, dealing with shipwrecks, because it is in this kind of liminal zone. Um, it's situated, you know, kind of between um, Turkish Cyprus and Greek Cyprus. And of course, you know, anyone who knows anything about the politics of Cyprus knows that it's, it's uh, pretty convoluted. And, uh, you know, there was a the, uh, Turkey invaded um, the island from the north in, in 1974, uh, following decades of political turmoil, attempted genocide of, uh, of you know, uh, Muslim Cypriots. Uh, and so this was, it's a very complicated and, and still, um, you know, fraught situation, but because this shipwreck has long been associated with the Ottoman empire, thereby associated with Turkey, um, it has been, you know, kind of subject to, um, to a lot more, uh, aggressive, um, looting. And, and it's also with fairly shallow waters. I think it's like 20 meters, 25 meters, something like that. So comparatively shallow water is very much accessible to, uh, to recreational divers, it's pretty close to the coast, so it's really been kind of subject to a lot of a lot of this like pilfering, and um, so it's yeah what it sort of represents in in uh, the first chapter of the book is again this kind of like this kind of liminal zone between between nations between um, states of preservation between scientific interest and popular interest. And that it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a no man's land. Um, and the way that we try to like 
you know, attribute um, wrecks and, and underwater cultural heritage just in general to certain uh, to certain cultural groups, to certain nations, you know, as property that there are these other wrecks out there that seemingly nobody really wants. And, you know, it's because of, because of these political reasons. Um, so it kind of, it kind of um, maps on to some of the bigger, uh, the bigger arguments in that first chapter, which is really like laying the groundwork for, for the rest of the chapters to come, uh, you know, which again, kind of goes back to these, these problems of, 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 uh, of dualities and um, binary oppositions and, and just, how we treat underwater cultural heritage in general. Yeah, this is this place. This is when I really understood that I was going to use the word liminal a lot um, as we moved forward. This was where liminal became an essential part of understanding the book. But it's also the place where I wondered that when I first asked who owned a thing, right? So it's Ottoman. So clearly it's Ottoman, but it's on Cyprus. So now it's Cypriot. And is it is it, is it, does it belong to the looters? Does it belong to the people who live on this island and who dive there and pull stuff off of it? Does it belong to the world community, whatever that means? Yeah. Does Turkey get to go back and get it? Cause that's where the Ottoman emperor was, you know, like. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it is in, in, um, you know, Cypriot meaning Greek Cypriot um, waters. And so, you know, like that's, I guess the, the understanding, but it does raise all of these other questions. And, and I think that because ships are, are such mobile entities and where they end up is often not where they set out. And so this, these problems of ownership are rampant in, you know, in maritime archaeology and in, and in maritime law, just in, in general. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that makes the Vasa weird is it didn't go anywhere. So <laughs> like, that's so rare. They're like, this is Swedish and they found it in Sweden and it's always been in Sweden. Yeah. And the same with the that. Mary Rose, right? It's yes. just like, that's that. So it's very clear in the, in these particular cases. And so, but that's also super interesting how these, how these kind of failed construction projects, these failed works of architecture have come to symbolize the greatness of these two empires, right? It's so strange. It's just, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Why do we want, why do we pick that these things to own and to symbolize, you know, the, the greatness of empire when they're ultimately failures? It reminds me of actually of a lot of indigenous discourse about how like, you know, like the, the sort of like, um, you know, empirical or sorry, the, uh, the imperial pursuits were sort of set out with this, these, this great ambition, knowing that it could, again, kind of subconsciously knowing all along that it was setting itself up for failure and that it simply could not last, uh, that this is not a, an enduring um, way of life, you know. No, I mean, and, and, and it was never right that the, the idea there would always be contact, but like eventually the settling, the colonial phase would end and then mm-hmm. there would have this just bigger, happier empire that's not how it went uh <laughs> spoiler, once again spoiler alert but that, that didn't happen um all right so tell me about the yarmouth roads protected wreck same question it's kind of like tell me about this guy all right so yeah the yarmouth roads uh protected wreck is in um it's situated sort of between the isle of white and the south coast of of england so it's in the solent strait um, it's very, very shallow, about uh, six meters, but the waters are very hostile, <laughs> very difficult diving there, um, even even despite its uh, its shallowness. However, if it is the wreck that uh, that it, it's sort of it may be um, because there are some historical records that show that there was a wreck 
you know, sort of in the same vicinity around the same time. Um, but of course, we have to understand that wrecks happen all the time, right? So we want to try to avoid the circular reasoning um, of, of saying like, okay, this wreck looks, you know, it is located here. This historical document says that there is a wreck located here. Therefore, this historical document is refer- is referring to this wreck because it's located here, right? So, um, so with with that in mind, if it is that particular wreck, um, then it was uh, then it was sort of looted by this kind of local privateer guy while it was still uh, sticking out above the water because it's so shallow, uh, which is probably normal practice. And uh, frankly, I don't even know that it's really all that wrong. But um, so at any rate, um, and even if it wasn't that wreck, it probably still would have been, um, you know, pilfered those parts that that were sticking out above the water. So uh, we think that based on the material culture that has been um uh, sort of associated with the site that it may have, it was carrying like some Dutch, uh, some Dutch pewter, um, but also some wool and um, some ceramics and things like that, that kind of point to a Spanish um, origin. And so because the, uh, yeah, because of this possible Spanish origin, um, we wanted to get a look at the, at the timbers and again, try to find out. But in, in the process of, of working on this shipwreck site, what interested me as far as this book is concerned is how we're sort of taking things out and also leaving things behind. Um, so, and, and these things that get left behind are often just because, you know, like we, you know, like the, the water just gets really dangerous and you can choose to either leave the tape measure on the seafloor or get washed out to the, to the ocean, right. And die. So, um, so these things end up, you know, sort of being like almost like sacrificial offerings, you know, all of our little scientific um, measuring devices and, and uh, you know, like the grids that we lay down to, you know, to be able to, um, you know, manage the space underwater and, and understand what, what um, certain features are in relation to others. Um, so these end up being you know, like, you know, like I said, these kind of like sacrificial offerings that um, work in this pattern of, of constant, like the cyclical exchange between the, the, the wood samples that, um, you know, that I cut into the shipwreck that my, my team and I cut into the shipwreck and took out um, the artifacts that we take out and the artifacts that we leave behind. Um, so it just kind of shows this sort of like ongoing relationship and um, again, kind of challenges this idea of like the, the shipwreck is this kind of stagnant, inert um, place where there's all this stuff, all this activity going on that humans also contribute to. Yeah, this idea of a dead place that's perfect that you can go back and find and you can resurrect this moment in time that can be encapsulated. Although I'm still unclear what that moment of time is. Are you trying to get the ship as it went off out to sea or the minute it died? Like how it fell into the bottom? I'm not even sure what the moment is where this... Like when does a ship? When is it a dead? When is it? When is it a wreck? And when is it floundering? Like when? Right. It this- kind of reminds me of um, that. You know this. Uh- the, this I, discourse has been going around in the United States in recent years about, you know, um, when was America great? When was America at its greatest? Right. Yeah. And we can we kind of ask that same question, I think, of, you know, of, of wrecked ships where we're, we're trying to resurrect it to what what was its utopian state when it was first built, when it was first launched, the moment before the storm, when things, you know, when things were still looking good, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, what, yeah, what is this this particular moment that we are trying to resurrect with our scientific endeavors. And that becomes a lot more complicated too with wrecks that have faced, you know, repairs over the course of time. 
And that's also something that's talked about in that same uh, that same chapter with the Yarmouth Roads protected wreck. Um, yeah, that's this. Uh, there's this kind of ongoingness, you know, with with a lot of ships where, you know, maybe certain parts will get um, will get replaced because they've been damaged. And so is that still the original ship? And so there's this whole paradox of the shipwreck or the ship of Theseus, which, of course, I turn into the shipwreck of Theseus um, that comes into play here, too, about authenticity and what that means. Mm-hmm. I would say that is a that is a question you share with your uh, landlocked archaeological brothers and sisters, right? Definitely, <laughs> so, yes. Um, so we've got these uh, these stones and they were used by the Romans and the Greeks and then the Romans and now they're part of a temple and then, you know. Like, yeah, you know, definitely. Who and then a mosque and then a, a Christian church. and <laughs> Right, and now uh, they're, <laughs> they're in like this rug shop. So it's a sacred <laughs> place now. Cool. Um, and it's, but the, it's, kind of part and parcel we can look at it as this of the ongoing story of like what we what humans are doing in our world around us yeah it's our history um so what do we do with this what can we learn from wrecks and wrecks that aren't what are what 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 is what is my take home here what do we want to do well i think the you know that probably the big claim here is um is summarized i suppose in the in the post phase so like the the four or i guess the five chapters are bookended by a, a preface and a, and a post phase and the post phase is sort of like this like uh offers one final hauntograph which is um a, uh, a mental picture so it's not it's not ex- explicit in a visual sense although it is explicit in the um you know sort of profane profane sense um where, you know, I, I sort of offer this idea that that maybe, um, you know, like where I, I, I like to imagine all of these early modern wrecks and like you, you said something earlier that just really cracked me up um, about how like they were they were launched to do mostly bad things, mostly <laughs> bad things. Right. Whaling, you know, imperial stuff, colonizing slavery, you know, stuff like that. Pretty bad things. So um I like to think of these these wrecked ships on the bottom of the sea as these sort of like insolent pieces of uh, you know of just like absolute you know recalcitrance and uh, rebellion and possibly like insurrection against you know if, you know against these uh, these kinds of imperial schemes and um, uh, anthropocentric in general schemes right. So, um, so yeah, that, I guess my big picture here is of course, to consider, um, Rex as, as something else besides dead ships, but as, um, really something more akin to sources rather than, rather than resources, you know, an underwater cultural heritage vernacular constantly refers to heritage products as, well, products is already sort of a, a hint at where I'm going with this, but as as resources, as commodities um, to capitalize from and to monopolize. And so, what I what I want to say, and I suppose this is a sort of like you know anti-colonial, um, anti-capitalist claim, is that um, that that wrecks are much more than that, and that uh, that we can see them instead as sources rather than, rather than as strictly as resources, but as, as sources of, uh, you know, of inspiration, sources of knowledge. Yes, definitely. But also 
sources of biodiversity and in some cases, sources of horrible pollution. Um, but understanding that like Rex as, as this sort of diverse, um, you know, uh, a group of, of, of sources of, of all different kinds of things, I think will help us imagine um, an underwater archaeology in the, in the future that, um, that maybe better deals with, with this diversity and, and that is in a better situation to appreciate that and um, to acknowledge uh, other ways of other ways of managing, um, even if that uh, even if those other ways of managing is just to let them be. Um, mm-hmm. let them be homes for cephalopods and uh, bits of coral and even the, the uh, dreaded Torito worm and things like that. Right on. All right. Yeah. And I think we can expand that, right? We can expand that out. I found myself questioning uh, scholarly boundaries and intellectual <laughs> binaries that I think I hold. And I, I found myself really being like thinking about how I could use um, what I was absorbing from this book and my own kind of my, my life as a scholar as well. Like, what do I, what do I take for granted? What do I hold dear? What, what unholy things have I never thought to throw together in a study and think about? <laughs> Cause it's kind of, it really is kind of like this punk rock thing you're doing here as well. Um, so I, I really, it's great. Super fun. All right. <laughs> Tons of your time. Another one of my past traditions that I'm drawing on for this book too. <laughs> to all the others. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Youth. So good. So many, so many sources there. We're really encouraged not to play with them, but you, the good call. Okay. So yeah, loads of time. I'm going to let you go. Just one thing. I know you're, you're making art and you're getting ready. You're enjoying your community. You're going up for tenure, which is its own project. But um, are you thinking about another monograph? Um, yes. So if I have a, a book proposal kind of sketched out for something called Boat Wreck, which I think would be because this book actually, believe it or not, it is massive, but it started out as a manifesto. And so I really want to try to get back to this idea of a, of a quick and dirty manifesto um, that basically uses wrecked boats rather than ships, but like small scale boats to articulate a, a theory of failure. So kind of productive, uh, a, a productive failure. So real quick difference between a boat and a ship size. Okay. Just, yeah. All right. Cool. That sounds really fun. I'm going to love reading that. That's going to be pretty, And my intention is that it'll be a lot more um, humorous than, <laughs> than shipwreck contography. Yeah. Humor so is not, um, <laughs> Uh, it's cheesy to set haunting maybe there I felt a lot of like I don't know there was a malaise that came over me a few times mm-hmm. when I was reading and that but in a good way don't no worries in a good way like huh let me consider this I mean we're talking about <laughs> I mean that was the other thing right all of this is failure but often death yeah. death and 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 unpleasant right really yeah. like violent death it's the a lot of these things also are um a catalog of our atrocities you know as a species so but and that's never far from the surface here when you're thinking about these things yeah for sure well on that note Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me it's been an absolute pleasure and i will we'll get together again for boat wreck that sounds great all right thank you so much yana it's really been a pleasure and a privilege